This episode of the Paddock Pass Podcast is brought to you by Fly Racing. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass Podcast presented by Fly Racing. On today's show, we're going to look back at the action from the Spanish Grand Prix at Jerez. Steve English, David Emmett, Neil Morris and Adam Wheeler on the show today. And guys, we had a, another great weekend of racing, but probably the biggest th- talking point is Adam. You were actually at a racetrack again. Yeah, it was a strange experience, Steve, to be in a press room hearing motorbikes uh, just a few meters away. Um, you know, it was a little soul-destroying at the same time to be in Jerez and not see any fans or hear that kind of distinctive din as the bikes head around into that, you know, wonderful stadium section uh, around the back of the circuit. Um, there was, I have to say, though, um, Neil and I uh, were staying downtown and there was still quite a party atmosphere vibe going on. Nowhere near as busy as usual, of course, but uh, there was still a bit of a celebration that the fact MotoGP was in town. But um, no, I mean, Jerez, as we know, is one of the most atmospheric Grand Prix on the calendar. So uh, it was nice to be able to go there, get some uh, some interviews in the bag and also just uh, sample a bit of um, racing again. Neil, obviously, it was strange for you because there was actually, for the first time in a year, a friendly face in the paddock, someone keen to see you. Yeah, exactly. Um, I've grown quite accustomed to having, you know, the media centre all to myself, more or less, and having plenty of space to stretch out. But, um, yeah, it was quite uh, perturbing to see uh, a silver-haired gentleman staring me in the face each morning uh, with a bit of a scowl on. Um, because I didn't have any coffee for him, um, but <laughs> other than that, yeah, it was nice to have uh, nice to have Adam back. And with uh, journalists being back, I think since well, since Qatar is actually a bit more of a uh, friendly, warm atmosphere in the press. Which journalists have you been talking to? Because I mean, like journalists and warm and friendly <laughs> are um, uh, with it's certainly not been my experience. Wasn't it obvious, Dave? Well, you're not you're not there, Dave. So <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, Dave, like missing out on the warm, cuddly. Moto Matters must have been a, a, a real awful, awful thing for Neil again. But for you, Dave, did you switch on Pink Floyd really loudly and uh, listen to that as the sun came up? Or did you realise that that hasn't happened for 20 years and you just didn't do it? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, you know, um, Pink Floyd's all right, but it's not all that. On a, <laughs> on a serious note, I have to say that, um, you know, while the pandemic is kind of bouncing around at different levels in Europe, um, it was encouraging to see a, a few more people in MotoGP on the grid uh there were obviously guests floating around um you know enjoying the racing getting access to motor gp so i really hope that uh you know that the series will visit some countries where the restrictions are lowering uh, or opening them up and that you know could mean that the, the the championship returns to normal in the near future yeah, I mean, guests are absolutely crucial to uh, MotoGP because they're the paying... Um, I mean, fans are really important because they pay the circuit, but the guests are important to MotoGP because it's the guests who are uh, usually sponsors who are actually paying the uh, the, the the big money to the teams. They're um, they're actually putting the money into the sport. Yeah, a case in point was there was a big cheese from, from Repsol there, uh, from the marketing department as well. So, I mean... Um you know MotoGP has to entertain these kind of people but you know it's a first step towards opening the sport up whereas last year was pretty much a closed shop as, as Neil would testify whereas Steve you look like you're in a very uh elegant hotel room where are you I am in a Madrid airport hotel room and I have to say it's not elegant at all actually it's about as budget as it gets but you know I've got to come to Spain for world superbike testing out in Aragon and then down to Valencia for CEV and I might manage to make a trip to Barcelona just for a coffee but uh, I, I won't do that with either you or Neil I'll, I'll spare you that 
Is your hotel as budget as mine was in Harith, Stevie? Uh, no, Neil. I am willing to spend more than five euro a night, but uh, <laughs> it definitely does seem like somewhere where people have been stabbed to death in this hotel. It reminds me an awful lot of where I used to stay in Austin for the Grand Prix, to be honest. But, uh, you know, there's always worse places to be. And at least uh, once we finish this Zoom call, I get into the car and I just drive out to Aragon, so it's not too bad. But uh, we've got a, a lot of ground to cover from the uh, the MotoGP action in uh, Hereth, guys. But before we kind of get into it, I just want to ask you all for what was your big moment of the weekend? So, Dave, what was your moment? My big moment came uh, when Jack Miller overtook Fabio Quartararo and we realised that it wasn't going to be the runaway victory that we thought it for, for Fabio that, that we thought it was going to be. Um, and that he ended up really, really struggling and just he, he just absolutely dropped like a stone uh, due to arm pump. And um, I think we were all wondering what it was. Uh, some people thought maybe it was tyres because he's had this problem before where they... Um, the uh, tire pressures go up too quickly. Tire temperatures go up too quickly, and then um, you lose grip from from the front, and you can't get the bike to turn or anything like that. And that's definitely what it, what it looked like. It looked like you couldn't get the bike the the bike to turn, but that uh, later turned out to be um, arm pump. There were a few people who called it right. Um, said, yeah, that's arm pump. So yeah, it's a, it's definitely a concern. Yeah, it's always one of those things, especially whenever the pressure goes up. It's usually whenever you're in the traffic and uh, the temperature goes up, the pressure comes up and it gets really tough. For Fabio, he's out in front. And obviously, we'll talk about this in a little bit more detail in a couple of minutes' time. But uh, definitely was one of those key moments. It was, it was the key moment of the weekend. But uh, Neil, what about you? What was your moment of the weekend? Um, I think it has to be uh, Jack Miller, um, not just crossing the line and, and securing his first dry weather victory in MotoGP, but um, you know Jack's emotion kind of coming to the fore afterwards. I think was uh, yeah, it was quite hard not to. It would have taken a heart of stone, I think, not to have felt for him in that moment because, uh, as we all know, you know Jack has had a pretty complicated start to life as a factory Ducati rider, um, but uh, it was a really, really strong performance uh, on Sunday. And yes, there was a little bit of luck there that uh, Fabio had his issues, but. Um, Jack rode a, a superb race, a really, really good race, really good weekend, in fact. And um, when the emotion was was kind of bubbling over, um, I think it was hard not to be it was hard not to be slightly affected by that. Yeah, so really impressive stuff again from Jack. And you know, at the end of the day, you have to be there in the right place to take advantage of that bit of bad luck to happen to someone else. Adam, what about you? What was your moment of the weekend? Um, there were quite a few sort of kind of moments to pick from even though the MotoGP race I mean we're on round four and three Yamahas have won so it's been three Yamaha victories up until this point uh you know there were a couple I mean for me the the last corner in Moto3 was uh you know typically you know frenetic frantic and uh very dramatic um but I I appreciated the fact that Peko Bagnaya now is now leading the world championship um I think you have to look at the the jubilation of, of, of Ducati's celebration, um, not just in context of the emotion that Jack Miller, you know, brought with his victory, but for the fact that the, the manufacturer went one, two and like, uh, their young Italian star is, is now leading the way. Uh, I mean, you could say what significance does that have? Because we've had three leaders of the world championship already in four rounds. Um, you know, and one of them has been another Ducati rider in Johan Zarco. But, um, for me, I think it's quite a statement that Bagnaia is there. I mean, I was just kind of looking back through his career numbers and, you know, in 2015, he was getting his first podiums in Moto3. In 2016, he had his first wins. He jumped into Moto2 and that two-year pattern is there again. Um, He took four podiums in 17 and then by 2018, he was world champion. 
2019 was his first year in MotoGP. Fair enough, he's learning. But then the combination of 2020 and this year, he's already getting silverware. So he's firmly on track. Uh, and if he continues in that way, then uh, he's going to be like a real threat for the world championship. Yeah, and I, I thought it, it was another one of those races as well where we just saw someone maximize everything, a bit like what we saw Juan Mir do last year. And, uh, you know, really impressive stuff from Peko. For me, my uh, my moment of the weekend was not a, not a good moment. Well, it was a good moment in some ways. It was Mark Marquez having two massive crashes and being able to walk away from them both because that was one of the big things coming into this weekend. What would happen when Mark had a crash? Obviously, we saw in Portimao he was willing to push hard. But now we've actually seen them have two big ones. Yeah, and uh, they were really big because uh, there was supposed to be a test on Monday and Mark was very keen to actually get some laps in and, and uh, test some stuff. Uh, but he only managed seven uh, seven laps. He had a very, uh, a very painful neck. It was completely st- stiff and stuck, which sort of gets locked, which uh, w- which happens quite a lot with uh, when people crash. So the, the fact that he's still suffering after effects the day after, that means it was a really, really big crash. And yeah, uh it happened uh what fp3 and he's still um uh, and he's still racing so do you think it might be any effects of a possible concussion as well because that was hinted at wasn't it post-crash yeah uh, yes yeah i mean you have to wonder about a, a concussion and again i'm still not convinced i mean like you know we, even when you talk to uh, sort of doctors inside dawn they don't seem to take they don't seem to think that concussion is a concern um uh, but uh, it really does uh, yeah i mean I, I, personally i think it's a bit of a worry um i know others are less concerned about it but it just seems just seems difficult can I ask you all just a question? Like, how many of you have actually had a concussion in different things? Uh, rugby, playing rugby once um, uh, in a, I think uh, probably in a rook. I just sort of like, uh, I remember being sort of not completely knocked out, but uh, um, a, a bit sort of woozy and then uh, going into the bar afterwards and drinking and not remembering anything. But I mean, not remembering anything before the uh, before the booze hit. solid (laughs) solid strategy to get over Dave I've always found just going down to lie down in a really dark room just served me really well from them as well it serves you right Dave for playing rugby so there you go (laughs) it's it's a very fine sport it's a gentleman's sport I got I got most of mine playing football at least dad and uh, you know each time you got it it was each of them is very different but they are something that do have a massive impact on you and it can take you know i had one that took me 10 days to get over and that was just from playing football and and basically being speared into the ground when i went up for a header and you know how you react to them is different for everyone but coming off a motorbike at those kind of speeds that we have now you know it's far too easy to get one and, and dave i found it really interesting over the weekend you posted about it on twitter and i think chris pike came back to you that they actually in world endurance had their own head injury assessment protocol within the team to ensure that uh, the riders were okay yeah because i mean the, the thing is the uh, the head injury uh, test is a it's a standardized test and they they use a baseline so first of all they assess you uh, well they know that you don't have a um, uh, have a concussion uh, but the trouble is that for a lot of them, these baseline tests, because a lot of it is also about, uh, you know, language and memory and that sort of thing. And if you're doing that, if you're doing doing one of these baseline tests or even uh, an assessment test uh, with two different people using two different um, uh, mother tongues in a second language, uh, then it becomes more and more complicated to actually tell, uh, you know, tell the difference apart. And it's, I mean... 
I'm not a doctor, so take this with a pinch of salt, but it does seem to be uh, quite a delicate or uh, uh, quite a very specific um, uh, uh, assessment. That's what I mean. Clinically, how do you prove you've had a, a concussion? I mean, just again, I spend most of my adult life playing football and, you know, I've rung, rung my bell a few times, you could say. But as for a rider, um, you know, what kind of questions are these, these kids or these guys being asked to determine whether they have a light concussion or a, or a severe concussion? I think it's, um, it's something that's hard to determine. And also then, you know, if, if there's a gray area, so to speak, uh, to do with a gray matter, then, you know, are riders or teams going to admit that, um, you know, with the possibility that their, their rider is going to be ruled out for a Grand Prix week? I know it sounds ridiculous because safety is always paramount, but it, it must happen. That, that's the risk. I mean, the Casey Stoner at Saxon Ring, I think 2006, perhaps, um, uh, that the circuit doctor, basically the, uh, the, the FIM doctors passed him fit, but the circuit doctor said, no, no, no you're, you're concussed, you're not racing. Um, and I remember him being absolutely furious about it because he, you know, he didn't think there was anything wrong with him. Um, uh, the, I mean, there are sort of like, they are standardized cognitive tests that they give, but there is a language element and, and that I think. And also there's always a comprehension element when you're asking people questions. Uh, uh, and that can get lost when you're sort of traveling, doing it across language barriers or, or language borders. So, um, yeah, it, it, it's always difficult, but, uh, it, yeah, the, the risk is, I mean, the reason that, that it doesn't get taken very seriously is because people are really, really afraid of losing a race. And, you, you know, you only get that one, that one chance, real chance per weekend. Yeah. And I think you saw, um, you saw that this weekend with the two reactions of, of two riders, you know, Mark obviously, um, spoke of having concussion like, um, symptoms, um, but was obviously very determined to race. Uh, Jake Dixon had a crash at the same place on Sunday and uh, was immediately ruled out because of uh, because of concussion. And we know that Jake had a similar injury, I think, in Kota 2019. Um, and he, I think he ruled himself out because he, you know, seems to be a guy that's very aware of the dangers of riding with a concussion. Not just you're a bit of a danger to those around you, but if you crash again, I mean, there is chance of serious, serious brain injury. Um, so, yeah, I thought that was quite interesting because you had two guys crashing at the same corner, um, both obviously with two slightly different attitudes towards that. Now, Jake obviously isn't in the situation of Mark is with the same pressure on his shoulders and maybe doesn't still think of himself as a, a potential uh, championship player in Moto2 um, but um, but yeah I thought it was quite interesting that uh, he was more or less ruled out um, not immediately but um, quite soon after the incident I don't know if you remember the uh, Dutch 125 and Moto3 racer uh, um, uh, Jasper Evenmaar he had a massive uh, uh, crash in uh, Kota um, I forget which year several years ago um, it rung his bell he had proper concussion he missed the race he was under a lot of pressure from the from the, from the the team to race but he came back early and that basically ended his career because he was never the same he, he had just a shocking run of results um, because he was still woozy he was still confused and all the rest of it and so he ended up basically losing his ride because he came back too early and he, and he admitted to me a couple of years later yeah I came back too early I, I should have sat out another couple of races Neil obviously we'll, we'll move on from talking about the injuries that were happening over the weekend or the crash we saw over the weekend to something that you know we expected to see in the early rounds of the year we expected to see Jack Miller winning a Grand Prix we expected to see him at the front but this is the first time we've seen Jack really perform like that over the course of this year. It's been a tough start to the year. Portimao, both Qatar rounds, and then suddenly at Areth, a track where you know Ducati were strong last year, but this hasn't historically been a great track for them. And suddenly Jack's able to come away with the win. They come away with a one-two. Really impressive stuff from Ducati. 
Yeah, really impressive stuff from Jacelli. Really impressive stuff from uh, from Jack as well, um, because all weekend long he was kind of being quizzed about the the pressure that he was under. Um, results hadn't really lived up to expectation. Um, Jack was very very aware of this himself. Had mentioned, um, I think, on Friday that we're in the shit. Um, he had spoken spoken previously and said, you know, we're in the trenches. Um, and he, he was slightly fortuitous on Saturday, getting a toe around from Banyaya. He kind of played. Um, quite an interesting strategy to get a toe from his teammate to get a front row. And that was impressive to, to get in the front row in Jerez on a Ducati. But then, you know, he played uh, Sunday just right. He got a great start, led the opening part of the race. And then when Fabio came through, just tried to get his hooks in. And um, his reasoning was, you know, Fabio's obviously been the fastest guy all weekend. And if he can kind of tow me away from the rest, then, uh, you know, a, a podium here is going to be a fantastic result. So, um the fact that he's come away with a <clears throat> with a victory um, in such a moment of pressure speaks a lot of, of his heart, speaks a lot of um, you know his battling instincts, and you just have to give him credit for that because he was under serious serious pressure. I mean, we've spoken on the pod and been slightly critical of him so far this year, but he's come out swinging, and um, you know you have to take your hat off to him. Yeah, because I thought Neil it was really impressive. You said there that you know he wanted to stick with Fabio in those early stages, but I thought it was really impressive that immediately he was able to do that and we saw him drop his pace considerably once Fabio hit the front after what was it three or four laps and Jack went with him you know Fabio was obviously pulling away gap by gap but it wasn't pulling away at the kind of speed that we expected to see yeah exactly um yeah it was um yeah it was it was clever and he, he kind of said afterwards how he had fe- he had felt slightly affronted by people saying this wasn't a harass track he pointed to Davizioso being on the podium in the first race here last year and he was fourth despite suffering from arm pump um, and he mentioned how I think had it not been for the arm pump he thought he could have won that that race the first of 2020 um, and then you, you look at race two and Banyaya obviously had a, a great race um, last year as well so um, yeah there's something about the Ducati that seems to have seems to have clicked here um, and um, yeah I mean Jack obviously made his own luck in that um, he put himself where he needed to be whenever Fabio's problems hit. I did uh, enjoy seeing the kind of release of emotion um, and tension that he displayed. Because in the official press conference, there's only four journalists allowed. Everyone else is, of, of course, connecting with Zoom. Um, and his whole demeanor was was different. Uh, he was kind of hunched. He was using that bizarre Euro-English that he speaks in during the, the official press conference on Thursday. And that was all gone. I mean, it was just a stream of, uh, you know, thought, um, you know, unchecked. Uh, I mean, profanity sometimes, unchecked enthusiasm. There was real, you know, it was it was good to see that kind of fresh face character that we remembered coming into the sport in like in Moto Three a couple of years ago. Um, and I think you know a lot of people think, well, you know, yes, his second win, it's not his first, but let's remember that it is his first, you know, with the Ducati. And also, like Neil kind of said, you know, the start of the championship has been pretty abysmal for a rider in his position and and with you know his expectation around him. I mean, I think he was, uh, you know, only had 14 points in the World Championship and was in 12th place while his teammate was knocking on the door of, of, you know, the red plate, as we say in MHGP, of being the series leader. So I think that was a pretty big statement by Jack. And I have to admit, on the last two laps when I was watching him um, and Pekka was gaining ground, I thought, please don't sort of throw this away. I was actually kind of, you know, fearful of there being some sort of mistake like we saw in Portimao. But, you know, he brought it home. And um, I'm hoping that, you know, this this he's still a young still a young guy. I'm hoping the confidence shot will will make him a, a big player in the championship. 
Yeah, I really enjoyed the press conference. I mean, like Steve Day runs those press conferences and usually does a really, really good job. But it just turned into, you know, the the Jack Miller show it, because it, it turned into a chat. They were all there was a lot of, uh, you know, they were all asking each other questions. They were all sort of, you know, interacting, and it was um, uh, it, it was a lot of fun. But yeah, the release of tension. I mean, that was just you could see how how much of a weight just came off of his uh, off of his shoulders, and for him to be able to follow Fabio because you could see Fabio really pushing trying to break him uh, and the fact that he didn't break I think that that really shows the measure of the man yeah I thought it was really interesting just that reaction in the press conference just to see as Adam said the humanity of all the riders and just to see Jack actually let his guard down because we haven't seen that for the last few years you, you always hear about how people want to see the true character of riders you know they talk about why do journalists like writer xyz and we we don't tend to see that in the press conferences. We tend to see it whenever you've got the face-to-face interviews or debriefs or anything like that. But I thought it was great to actually see just the reaction that the whole paddock had to Jack winning this race and then his reaction afterwards. Well, XYZ, Steve, is just not fulfilling his potential. So, you know, there's no reason for any journalist to like him. And he's a bit truculent as well. <laughs> <laughs> I want to pick up a little uh, on something that um, David mentioned on the paddock notes on Sunday. And that was just how, um, you know, this could be the first, this could really be something that ignites Jack. Um, you know, it, it'll give him the kind of belief that he can do it. And I think some of his t- his comments on, on Sunday were quite telling that, you know, maybe he's not a guy that is always believing in himself 100%. Uh, he was talking about, you know, several moments at the end of the race where he was just pinching himself. He just repeatedly said, like, I can't believe that this is happening. Um, and, um, you know, he had he had said that um, during the week, one of uh, one of the kind of motivators he had was a call from Lucy Crutchlow, Cal's wife. And I think Lucy said to him, you know, something along the lines of, you're fucking good, you're fucking fast. And he said he almost needed someone just to be that blunt to remind him that, you know, he's in the factory Ducati squad for a reason. And, um, you know, I think that does speak of the the kind of pressure that he was under, um, that some of that self-belief had kind of been whittled away a little bit. Um, and uh, you have to say that a performance like that um, in Jerez, I mean, usually the Spanish Grand Prix result sheet doesn't lie. Um, you know, a result like that, um, you know, hopefully can give Miller the, the kind of belief that uh, that he does deserve to be there and that on his day he is one of the fastest guys in this class um because yeah i guess maybe that hasn't always been evident in his uh in his well, approach what about the, the importance as well that fabio didn't win this one guys because this was potentially three in a row we go to le mans you know you got catalonia coming up you got strong tracks for the yamaha and suddenly instead of it being three in a row fabio running away with the points lead suddenly you know everyone's everyone's caught up it's a huge uh, it's a huge shift in the championship but remember we are only still four races in um and the other thing is Despite the fact that Fabio had uh, the uh, had these problems, he still got a few points. I think three uh, was it uh, three or four points, three points, um, uh, which he said himself at the end of the se- you know the the end of the season that could be really really important. Um, and also, uh, it was clear everyone throughout the whole weekend said, "No, it looks like Fabio's got this one." And we get into the race, and it looked like he did have it until he started uh, developing uh, developing the arm pump, uh, pump problems, and um, that. Uh, I think um, I think we come away with this being still of having been a, 
a bit of Fabio's race, if you like, if you know what I mean. I mean, like this was the race which Fabio should have won but didn't. Um, it's the one where Jack Miller really, uh, I mean, like he put himself in the perfect situation to uh, uh, to, to benefit and really showed what he what he's made of. Um, and uh, again, Banyaya, I think Banyaya came out of it very, very well as well because you know he's leading the championship and he got he really maximised his potential. Yeah, I think um, I think for Fabio is that um, obviously the arm pump issue has, has basically cost him a race win. That's that's pretty devastating. It, it also seemed to be just the, the kind of confusion that it brought up um, that was also massively concerning. I mean, this is something that didn't appear, he said, at any point uh, at Jerez previously when he was riding the MotoGP bike. Um, he also said that he had pretty bad arm pump issues at Portimao last November, um, yet they didn't surface at all, not at one point during the Portuguese Grand Prix two weeks ago. Um, and then suddenly, this is the first time all weekend, um, what, 18, 19 laps into the race, um, that he starts to feel this. So, um, I mean, that that can really play on a rider's mind. Um, you know, that... Uh, the kind of unpredictability of it. And um, we're recording this on Tuesday after the race. I think Fabio has since been to France to have some checks on the arm. Um, it doesn't look like he's going to be going uh, for more surgery on the joint. Um, he posted a tweet um, yesterday with Valentino Rossi saying, you know, that, you know, everything should be okay and he should be fighting fit and ready for Le Mans. Um, but it's got to be something that's playing at the back of your mind. I agree, Neil. I think it's just the wider implications of this, because if he was considering surgery, then it's the second time in, in two years and he's only 21 years old. I mean, it's not like he's, uh, you know, near his 30s and is, you know, trying to rescue or pro prolong his career. Um, you know, we've had, I think Joan Mir pointed this out uh, on Sunday afternoon as well by the fact that, you know, Jerez and the nature of the circuit is different to a little bit of the flowing aspect that we found in La Salle and Portimao. Uh, so that could be a thing. And obviously Le Mans is a, is a similar kind of, you know, fast, slow corner, heavy braking circuit. So uh, Fabio, I think, has is, is, is got reason to be worried. Yeah, I mean, um, after the race, I asked lots of uh, riders uh, about arm pump and about the issues control. The Jerez was interesting, or the most interesting question or response I got was the fact that um, uh, the circuits where arm pump is a bigger issue are Jerez, Aston and Mugello, and Mugello being the biggest, or well, Jerez and Mugello being the biggest one. Um, the difficulties, you're doing a lot of braking uh, at, at an angle, so leaned over. At Le Mans, it's less of an issue because you're doing a lot of straight line braking when you're doing straight line braking what you can do is hold your weight up um, basically lock your elbows and hold um, hold your weight up so it's it, you're distributing the, the the load through your body better but because uh, in Jerez you're actually leaned over you you're off the off the bike you've got your arms bent and then you're trying to hold your body weight up at the same time and that price that that Pre, uh, puts a lot more stress on your lower uh, on your forearms um, and like I said I asked lots and lots of riders about it but none of them really seemed to have a, um, a an explanation there were some who had it some who didn't uh, Alicia Spargaro has also gone back to Barcelona for uh, for for an operation on on arm pump um, Luca Marini was actually really interesting he said you know guys in the academy tend not to have and he said it's about riding you have to do lots and lots of riding um, on a motorbike 
to um, just to build up to, to stress that sort of, the, the, those sort of muscles to uh, to build up that sort of um, uh, um, uh, fitness. And I think one of the most interesting things I think is Carlos Checker, who was actually doing a lot of rock climbing, which is again something where you're doing uh, you're tensing your forearms a lot and putting a lot of weight and stress on your forearms, um, and it, so your arms become sort of accustomed to it. But it's a, it's a big issue in motocross, Ad, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's um, it's probably one of the most common physical problems in MHGP or well, motocross generally, supercross as well. And there's a couple of schools of thoughts about that. One, it's um, a physical thing. Um, you know, if a rider is consistently suffering arm pump, then to keep riding the bike is is going to make it flare up even more. So maybe tapering off your training or your time on the bike is one solution. Um, like you say, Dave, as well, riding time is probably. Uh, another um, possible fix to it so get on the bike more but then there's people that believe that it's a psychological thing um you know the rider's tensing up uh he's 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 not flowing on the motorcycle um you know the arm lock is coming you know it's, it's something that doesn't happen in training but then happens in a race situation or with the pressures involved of a, of a an event where you have to deliver um i mean i've done interviews with um you know, trainers and, uh, and physios in the paddock. And there are people that swear blind that if you strap uh, an athlete's shoulders, if you apply surgical taping, uh, which we, we see quite frequently now in sports, um, it has something to do with the rider's posture, especially on a dirt bike, which is very upright. Um, and the surgical tape was actually pulling uh, the neck and the shoulders back and not so hunched and not so pressurized over the front of the bike. Um, you know, this is one solution that a couple of Red Bull KTM riders were using a couple of years ago. So that's that was uh, thought to be one alleviating factor. Um, I, I'm curious as to how, you know, road racers sort out that problem or what they or what they're actually looking at aside from just going under a surgeon's knife again there's a training aspects to it uh, of uh, having your forearms prepared and you know they're, they're just used to the, to the stress but um uh, yeah surgery seems to be the big thing and it actually it was interesting what you said about the about the tape across your shoulders because as i said you're hunched over when you're hunched over you're not got your elbows locked so you you know you've got less um uh, uh, the the veins in your arms are already a little bit more constricted but also you you're putting more stress on your forearms because you're carrying your weight there and yeah it, it, there is always Always a, um, I wouldn't say psychological element, but there's always a, a, a mental element of it anyway, because it is about sort of stress. It's about uh, having to grip on harder uh, and, and hold on harder than than before. Yeah, Dave. Just before we go to an ad break on the show, we got a question from Paul Leggett about this actually, and Paul's one of our Patreon supporters, and he asks, "Do we actually need to dial down the speed of MotoGP bikes?" just because maybe now it's getting far too physical for riders. We're seeing more and more riders suffer from arm pump. The the problem is, I mean, we need to, the, the bikes are getting too fast. Well, I think we talked about this after Qatar as well, where um, Jean Zarco hit, what was it, 362, I think. Um, uh, the bikes are getting too fast for the circuits. But the trouble is, it's a progression. I mean, the, the manufacturers are working all of the time to make the go, the, the, the bikes go faster. Uh, Michelin is working to make the tyres better, which in, increases uh, corner speed. Brembo is working to make the 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 the, the brakes better. Um, <clears throat> Olins is working to make the suspension. Olins and WP uh, are working to make suspension better. All of that is um, aimed at 
being able or making the, ba- the the bikes better able to withstand stresses. Um, but the stresses have to go somewhere and they're going into the body of the rider. So, uh, yes, yes, the bikes are getting a bit too fast for uh, for ordinary humans. Um, but these are athletes, you know, athletes just have to deal with it. And at some point, it's a bit like the, the if you like, the, the, the 100 meter sprint record. It's... Um, drops quite quickly and then it comes to a point where you're just taking off sort of you, you know you you might be uh, might be in a period where you're taking off sort of you know five six hundredths uh, uh every couple of years and then it comes down to you know you might get a hundredth off every uh, uh, every two uh, every three or four years so it, the, the the margins are getting tight getting tighter and tighter yeah, it's always going to be quite interesting to see who's going to be the Usain Bolt and MotoGP. Oh, we already had that with Mark, actually. So uh, maybe now it all changes again. But uh, when we come back after the break, we're going to look at the rest of the Rath Grand Prix. Fly Racing believes that our most important obligation is to provide the highest performing products to riders worldwide. Offering both on- and off-road products for every price range, Fly Racing is committed to reshaping expectations. Fly Racing revolutionized the off-road world with the Formula Helmet, featuring Rion technology. Visit flyracing.com and at flyracingusa on Instagram to learn more about the innovation that can keep you protected in 2021. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Fly Racing. Adam, we're after hearing from David there about the increases that we've seen in speed in MotoGP, the impact that's had on riders' well-being and basically what's driven that. But obviously, we saw this weekend as well. That increase in speed has had a dramatic impact on the tracks as well. And this was a big talking point all the way through the Hareth weekend. That's right, Steve. It's, it's a natural, like Dave says, a natural progression of, of motorsport. Um, I think it's been highlighted not only through Zarco's new record, but also the fast crashes we saw for both at least HRC um, riders at turn seven um Jerez, there were a couple other accidents there darren binder i think going down uh um was another one but um you know mark apparently crashed uh you know over 180 kilometers per hour uh destroyed the the air fence which of course brings the red flags out it all looks quite dramatic um and, and he escaped okay and actually after that i i went to look um at a few statistics at Jerez, and in 2001 the maximum speed was set by valentino rossi with 264.6 kilometers an hour if you cycle forward 10 years and 2011 the grand prix was wet so skip forward one more year 2012 the speed climbed up to 289 and that was set by stefan bradle and then if we go to 2021 joe and zarko is now topping 300 so you're looking at you know a 36 kind of kilometer per hour progression in 20 years that's 22 miles an hour it doesn't sound like a great deal but you know when we're talking about the same 4.4 kilometer layout you know, that's that's a significantly faster, you know, motorcycle to deal with. I think uh, I spoke also with um, Miguel Oliveira's crew chief, uh, Paul Chirathan at KTM. And he said, while the top speed set by Zarco in La Salle was fantastic headlines, he and a lot of his peers were not terribly impressed. Um, they said, you know, we don't want the speeds to get higher. There's no uh, pot of gold at the end of that speed rainbow. It's more a case of for them. Uh, the ultimate ambition is to make the easy motorcycle. The easy motorcycle is always going to achieve high, uh, you know, lap times. It's going to achieve efficient race times, but it's not going to be uh, searching out crazy, crazy, you know, uh, speeds that are going to shatter the the radar traps at the end of a straight. So, um, you know, I think there is some general concern in MotoGP about 
you know how speeds are climbing but then you know this is this is what the guys are there to race for yeah i mean like i've been talking to sort of mike webb on and off the record about um uh, speeds and lap times for ever since i've got to MotoGP, gp basically you know for more than a decade and he says it's always a concern and they're always looking at ways uh, to improve safety just because we are running out of places there are places you know like uh, the end of the straight Mugello, that could be um uh, that is very much a limiting factor there's a few iconic tracks that we risk uh, that we risk losing but the thing about making an easy motorcycle is um if you make an easy motorcycle more people are going to go fast and so they're going to try harder um and uh, you're still going to end up going fast i mean the, you know the, the point of motorcycle racing is to go as fast as possible and no matter what you do to the bikes um i mean we saw this when we went from 990 cc's to 800 cc's um it was supposed to slow the slow the bikes down but i think it took one year before them to start smashing uh, lap records again uh, they the manufacturers just found a different way to go just as fast with less horsepower yeah you can't stop it and i think you can apply it to other series as well steve you'll see it in superbike um, even in MXGP, uh, a rider like Jeffrey Hurlings is having a Mark Marquez effect where he's um, establishing a base of performance and results that, you know, is perhaps a consequence not only of the performance of the engines, but more the chassis and the suspension. Um, it's a whole evolving package that is just not slowing down. Again, the tracks, they there's more freedom in motocross to mold them and make them more limiting when it comes to speed. But these guys are still railing corners and berms like you wouldn't believe. Uh, it is leading to an increase in injury. Um, I'm just curious to see how, you know, you could possibly stop it in MotoGP without adding pages and pages to the rulebook. I think Turn 7 at Jerez obviously came under uh, some spotlight uh, over the weekend because of Mark's crash there and Paul's crash. Um, you know, the fact that they hit the uh, the safety barriers with some with some force. Um, but then you look at uh, Model 2 warm-up, um, and obviously we had pretty cold temperatures because we started 20 minutes minutes earlier on Sunday because of the, the Model E race was supposed to happen at 10. And uh, we had two crashes there, Celestino Vietti and um, Jake Dixon. You know, Dixon ended up getting a concussion and, and, and was ruled out of the race, but both of those guys also made it to the, the trackside barriers and uh, hit them with, uh, with some force. So, um, you know, I think that does suggest that, you know, Turn 7 is one of the, the, the problem areas on the track. It, the um the the sand pit or the the gravel trap just isn't big enough um but then you have one of those issues which is kind of similar to suzuka that you know Jerez is such a compact layout you don't really have space to to work to, to kind of extend that because basically if you extend that then you reduce the gravel trap going into the final turn at turn 13 so um it's a bit of a head scratcher you, you don't really know what the, the solution is if they do want to extend the the, the traps at uh, turn seven yeah, but slowing bikes down is almost impossible. The only the only real way to slow the bikes down, to make them slower everywhere, both on the straight and around the corners, is to change the tyres. But telling a uh, especially a spec tyre supplier, uh, uh, listen, uh, we need to cut tyre width from whatever is. Uh, what is it eight nine inches whatever to sort of you know having a uh, two and a half inch tire on a moto gp bike that is uh, not going to be very popular it would be extremely effective um but it wouldn't be at all popular because you know you'd, you'd have these massive bikes wobbling around on these tiny little tires and you'd have to do it for all uh, all of the classes another problem is bike weight um but again the bike weight is because the bikes are getting faster they're getting more powerful um and so that means they need to be stronger and there are two ways to make things stronger that's either add more material or um uh, spend an awful lot of money to use extraordinarily light materials 
Yeah, and I think when you look at, like Neil, you were mentioning there about what you can do at a ret. Obviously, turn seven, you are very restricted because the track leads straight onto the next, onto the final corner. But they could probably bring that corner back a little bit and just take out some of the, the land that's to the left of the track and try and reprofile it that way. I think it would be sad to lose turn seven as it is because it's a great corner. The other option could be where they bring the turn six hairpin back and then suddenly you're not coming from such a top speed on the run into seven and maybe that's an option but like at the end of the day circuits that were designed 30 years ago for 500 grand pre bikes for formula one cars all of that's changed you look at portimao is a good example portimao is a brand new track suddenly formula one goes there and they have to make changes Suddenly, World Endurance goes there. They have to make changes. Suddenly, MotoGP's there, and a track that was, you know, on the limit in a few places for a superbike, suddenly is, you know, very much on the limit on a MotoGP bike. So it's tough for everyone, and I think there's no easy solutions to it. You know, like Adam said earlier on, you know, the evolution of racing is that you're always going to get faster and faster. It's always going to get tougher and tougher, and you know that's that's what happens with these kind of circuits as well. And you don't want to lose the essence of circuits like Hareth but they might have to make changes. Yeah, I mean, otherwise what we end up with is uh, 19 races at Qatar because um, there is loads of room there, uh, plenty of runoff. There's no real places where you are limited and there is an unlimited uh, amount of money to throw at making changes whenever they're necessary. There is a great Wagamama's there as well, so I'm not sure that, you know, 19 races in Qatar is all bad. And obviously, Adam, as well, for Ducati, they wouldn't mind it as well. They've always gone well there. And, uh, you know, well, they're leading the championship now with Paco. That was one of your big talking points from the weekend. And really impressive stuff from from Bagnaia all the way through. Uh, yes, they've, uh, you know, I mean, heading the world championship, like I mentioned earlier, he's had a pretty fast progression. I mean, even if you look at his career, it's eerily close to the to the steps that Valentino Rossi made in the lower classes. I mean, it took a slightly uh, longer spell to get going in Moto3, but um, Bagnai is quick to learn. Um, my impression of him, that he's an intelligent guy as well, uh, you know, very focused on self-performance as well as his strategy. Um, you know, from, you know, like Neil said previously on the podcast, some of the interviews we've done with him, he's been very quick in identifying where his weaknesses have been and where he needs to make changes in his overall race approach. So, uh, you know, we talked, we talked about that press conference and how kind of entertaining and revealing it was on, on Sunday afternoon, but it was also very clear to me how much Banyaya is taking all of this in his stride. Uh, you know, he's top of the championship and he said, you know, his words were in the press conference that it's only been an hour after the race and I'm sure it'll kind of sink in and it means relatively little because there's still 16 odd races to go. Um, you know, we're still waiting to see if the calendar will remain as it is. But, you know, Benai has made a, a pretty big statement by getting some consistency early on um, and then also proving that he is one of the very top Ducati riders in, let's face it, the probably the pool of the most the most talented pool there is fighting for those Desmos Adichie factory seats. In the interview that we did with him before the start of the season, he said, uh, you know, I really worked on that first start of the, you know, that those first few laps of uh, being able to get the tyres up to temperature so that I can sort of ride the way that I want to. And that has really, really paid off. You can see, you know, he doesn't, hes- he doesn't hesitate. He's fast right from the start no matter what the conditions whether it's hot or cold and this is a again i think a benefit of the vr46 academy which is all of these academy riders they're spending so much time riding and racing against each other um that it uh, they get time to actually practice all of these things um they get a lot of, a lot of track time 
Um, just a, a quick thing on Banyai. I mean, um, obviously, he's impressive. You look at what he did on the Mahindra Model 3, fantastic. His Model 2 title in 2018. I mean, the guys he beat to that title now, when you look back at it, you think, goodness me, he beat Oliveira, Binder, Alex Marquez, Joan Mir, Luca Marini, Fabio Quattararo. I mean, that was a, a seriously strong year in Model 2 when you look back on it. And um, if I have to be honest... I expected Banyai to be up there fighting for race wins sooner than he has been. Um, you know, I was expecting him to be up there with the leaders in 2019 in his debut year, but that was obviously quite complicated. And the Ducati maybe is or was um, then a little more complicated for rookies to jump on. Um, but, you know, I always had in the back of my mind that it was going to be a matter of time before Banyai was up at this kind of level because he has shown just how good a rider he is um, in the smaller classes. Um, and... He's consistent. He has championship winning experience. I mean, you have to say that he, he is maybe going to be a factor this year in the championship. Yeah, and Neil, that actually kind of brings us into some of our questions that we got in from listeners. So at Paddock Pass Pod, you can drop us a question after any of the Grand Prix weekends. And one of the questions came in from Motomad, and he asked, what are the chances that Ducati can win the title? And what are Peko's chances of doing that? And, you know, I think for, for me, what Peko's did in Moto2 marked him out. Like you said, Neil, I think everyone expected a bit more from him in 2019. Last year, there was, you know, when he was when he was good, he was very good. When he was bad, he was pretty bad. So now it's about trying to find that consistency. But the speeds there, the intelligence is there, the racecrafts there. But can he string it all together? We're we're still at a very early stage of the season, Steve. Um, but I would say the 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 kind of the early signs are, are very promising indeed. Um, you know, he's he's put together three podiums from the first four races. And if you watch back the Doha GP, I think he had the chance to maybe finish second or higher in that. But he made a, a, bit, a pretty crucial mistake at, uh, at turn one uh, towards the end of the race. And after then, he said, you know, these kind of mistakes are not acceptable when you're a factory rider. Um, so I thought that was quite impressive. You know, that's the guy that's um, uh, willing to front up to the, the kind of the pressure and the expectation that he faces this year. And since then, you know, he's managed to put in two sterling performances performances at uh, Portimao and Jerez. So, yeah, considering that he is more mature this year and he has more experience, he seems to have worked on his weaknesses from last year, as David mentioned. I think we have to talk him, talk about him as someone that's in the mix. You know, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and say he's, he's a favourite, but he's definitely in the mix. A frustrating thing for me, uh, and my two cents worth, is the disparity in the performance of the Yamahas, because they're the winner of the, you know, we've okay, we're into three tracks, but they've won three Grand Prix. And you can see a rider like Fabio Quattararo can put himself in the race winning position, but then Maverick Vinales and Valentino Rossi's having a nightmare. Franco Morbidelli's on a two-year-old bike. There's a real kind of just diverse collection of issues, problems and stories going on amongst that kind of, you know, uh, quartet. Um, but Ducati, for me, you know, have really seemed to have made a step forward because, you know, not only is I, I, I do question whether a rider like Johan Zarco will have the consistency to be a championship player. Um, but crucially, he's proved that the performance of the motorcycle and the tracks that we've seen so far is right up there. So whether it is a Jorge Martin or a Zarco or a Bastianini or, you know, all of them are making their own kind of narratives in MotoGP, uh, the onus falls on Bagnaia and Miller. To, to, to push the red right up to the top of the points table. And I reckon they're going to do it. Yeah, I mean, I'm getting a really strong um, Juan Mir 2020 vibe off of Pekka Banya at the moment. Three uh, the, uh, 
three podiums and a sixth place, um, uh, and the sixth place was a bad result. That is, um, that really is the kind of consistency that you need over a championship. I thought he's uh, answering the press conference uh, to uh, how does it feel to be leading the championship. Hang on, give us a minute. I've only just uh, only just found out an hour ago. Um, uh, I thought that was a very good answer. Um, and you, again, exactly like Shuan Mir when he was leading the championship, you really knew that at some point he was going to win a race, and you feel exactly the same with Peko. You know, if Peko can. Uh, Pekka Banyai will win a race and you have to wonder which one it is I you sort of suspect it might just be Mugello and that would be a little bit special yeah Dave the inevitability of Pekka winning a race does seem like it's ramping up all the time and the inevitability of Aprilia picking up a podium seems like it's gaining its momentum as well and we actually got a question in from Hal about Aprilia and their form this year and the question he's asking is is the Aprilia a better bike than the KTM now in MotoGP so I'll throw that to any of you whichever you want to take that one on well I was actually going to pick Aprilia as my winners from the winners and losers in the show this week Steve um, you know 35 world championship points um, significant progression over 2020 where the thing just wouldn't look like it would last um, unless you Spargaro frequently cut a, you know, a, a figure of exasperation, um, you know, with, with the situation. I mean, even a rider like Lorenzo Sabadori, who, you know, is, is perhaps fairly, maybe justifiably seen as the whipping boy of the class. I mean, he's only two points behind Valentino Rossi. I mean, you know, I'm sure if you had told a, a young Lorenzo that he would be in that situation one day, then, uh, you know, he wouldn't quite believe it. So it's, uh, I think, in really, really encouraging signs from from that team, um, you know, and which is fantastic for, for MotoGP because if a rider like Andrea De Vizioso thinks, well, I'll have a go or I'll test it, you know, maybe there's a more exciting talent from Moto2 who are not turning their nose up at the black bike because it's not finishing races or it's languishing at the back of the field. Yeah, I mean, in 2020, there were riders who turned the Aprilia down and I don't think anyone's going to be turning the Aprilia down um, next year. And I think, also, I mean, what what you're really seeing is that last year, um, Alicia Spargo was really frustrated because the bike wouldn't stay in one piece. You know, uh, it would break down or it was missing very, very important. Uh, it was just missing that crucial element to actually be successful. Now he's, uh, if anything, perhaps even more frustrated, but it's a good frustration because he knows they're almost there. He can really feel that it's almost there and you can see it in his results. He finished, what, five seconds back? Um, uh, uh, around Jerez and that was just a really really impressive performance um, and yeah I think I think we see an, uh, an Aprilia podium this year Just to add yeah, to what you were saying now Dave I mean um, I think from 2002 until 2009 sorry 2020 um, there were only four occasions um, in which an Aprilia finished less than 10 seconds behind the race winner of MotoGP we've had four races in 2021 Alice has been less than 10 seconds behind the winner in each race so I mean that alone tells you that uh, you know they've made massive strides this year I don't know about you guys but I also also feel that we're getting to a point where uh, the performance of the Aprilia maybe is going to show some of the the weakness of Alesh you know is he a rider that can really get onto the podium on a regular basis or even win a Grand Prix um, you know we're, we're reaching I think that point and it's not too ridiculous to start thinking you know uh, is it the bike or is it the rider soon yeah and I think for me because Adam's obviously jumped us into winners and losers at this stage one of the winners for me is Digia obviously we saw Digia manage to pick up the win in Moto2 he's already signed on for 
a contract next year in MotoGP and competitive machinery with Grassini. Maybe the Aprilia is the competitive machinery. That's obviously been one of the big talking points for a lot of people about what happens with the satellite bikes next year and you know what uh, what manufacturers go with which teams. And maybe, amazingly, Aprilia could be one of those hot seats that everyone wants. And, and for me, that's what made Digia's ride so perfectly timed because like Neil said we've had four races where Aprilia's made a massive step forward and suddenly Dave we've got one of those top Moto2 riders that could well be in line to jump onto a bike like that I think it's really promising for Aprilia really good for Fabio as well but David what about you who was your winner from the weekend I mean it has to be Jack Miller really doesn't it um uh, he needed this he really really needed it and uh, like I say, I think this is the moment where, which could be a turnaround, because we see this so often in the past, where um, a, a rider seems to be really close to a win, and there's also there's a big, big difference between a dry win and a wet win. Uh, a wet win, um, it's a different riding skill, and you can get away with a lot more. But a, a dry win, you have to have all of your ducks in a row. You have to have um, everything just right. Um, Jack Miller did it. He did it under pressure. And I think that this could be the start of a turnaround. Now he believes in himself. He believes that he can win a race. And that was one of the key parts, parts which was missing. Yeah, even more than believes he can win a race. He knows he can win a race. Now, Neil, you've obviously already talked a lot about Jack, but who was your big winner from the weekend? Um, yeah, it's someone that we haven't really talked about at all in this show, and that is uh, Franco Morbidelli in third. Um, because at first, I mean, Franco mentioned after the race he said uh, there was a shadow of frustration around us and I think that's very much been apparent to anyone that's sort of listened to Franco talk or been in his media debriefs <clears throat> or even looked at some of his body language whenever you, you kind of see him around the paddock or in the garage um, there was a worry after Qatar um, we heard some sort of concerning whispers that um, you know he was he was this was affecting him negatively the fact that he was on a two-year-old bike was maybe causing him to think, oh, you know, I, I should be on a, a factory bike now. And maybe that was just taking his eye off the ball. But what I've loved about the last two weekends is, is Franco is clearly carrying this frustration around, but he's using it in a positive way. He's, he's, he's letting it fire him up. And um, I thought he, he rode spectacularly well. I mean, to finish 2.5 seconds off a race winner at rest on a two-year-old bike, um, after having, as he said, a pretty frank exchange of uh, viewpoints with uh, Lynn Jarvis about the situation, um, I thought it was quite spectacular. And I, I sort of love this uh, this attitude he's got where, you know, he, he kind of laughs anytime he's, he's asked about whether he's anything new to test or whether any upgrades come as if he's just like, <laughs> you really expect that to come to me, come my way. Um, I think um, I think what Franco's doing in the past two races is quite exceptional. And yet he did actually get a couple of new pieces to, to test at the the test on Monday. He tried the second carbon swing arm, which I think uh, the factory guys uh, tried at Qatar. Uh, and he had a new, a completely new mud, a front mud guard, which I think is aimed at uh, the aerodynamics. Um, uh, and the, yeah, I mean, he is being given stuff to test um and i would be shocked if he's not on a full uh, full factory bike next year obviously um as well whenever we've got winners we've got losers neil we came to you last for franco as your big winner from the weekend but we'll give you the chance of jumping in feet first as well with uh with your with your big loser from the weekend who who, who would you see as filling out that role 
Yeah, Steve, um, I'm going to have to say uh, Paul Spargrel um, for the big loser of the weekend. Um, Paul, I'm just an employee of Spargrel, as <laughs> I think he's going to be known by uh, for the rest of this year. It was, um, I know there's a, there's a couple of things that I think have led to this decision. Um, the fact that he finished a place behind Marquez, um, uh, you know, more than a second behind Marquez, didn't have any answer for Mark um, during the, the, the race. Um, I think that's a factor. Paul seemed to have it in his head that Jerez would be a place that he could come and maybe even fight for the podium um, because he knows the track well. And um, yeah, it just didn't really work out that way. And then <clears throat> what's more than that, um, Paul seems to have discovered that, um, you know, there isn't a kind of KTM-esque um, open Basically, everyone shares their information and you can ask what Iker Lekuona is running if Iker Lekuona is outperforming you. That just doesn't seem to exist, that atmosphere or that working method within Honda. And uh, Paul was very much voicing his um, his uh, frustrations on Sunday evening that uh, he wasn't able to understand what Mark Marquez was running uh, in the race. What chassis is he running? What setup is he running? He can't compare himself to these guys. And you have to think, Paul, I mean... Like, what were you expecting going into the world? Like, you know, an eight-time world champion's garage. Like, really? Um, and, and not just that, but you were going into his garage replacing his younger brother. I mean, obviously, Mark <laughs> might not be inclined to share uh, the secrets of success with you when he feels that his younger brother should be in your place. So, um, yeah, I think uh, <laughs> it's a tough year ahead for Paul in the circumstances. He's wrong about being a Honda employee because he's not a Honda employee. He's an employee of Mark Marquez. Yeah, but isn't that isn't he being a bit harshly done by? Because apparently Takanakagami had, you know, last year Mark wasn't there, but he had access to all of Mark's information to try and, you know, be the lead Honda rider. I mean, Marquez is coming back, but he's not fully fit. And he's, you know, why not try and push the case of Paul? Yeah, but key phrase there was uh, Mark wasn't there. <laughs> But Honda, Honda were prepared to share, Dave. So that's the point. So somebody in upper management has said, Mark was running this, try running that. You know, and you think, you know... Yeah, but now Mark is back. That's the difference. Yeah, but if, you, if you've hired Paul Spargaro for 3 million euros, then why would you leave him languishing, lost, without any kind of reference? It seems like a beating yourself with a stick. Because Mark Marquez says so. Yeah, because, they've, because the man they're paying 25 million euros um, <laughs> uh, uh, says so. That's why. I mean, it doesn't matter what you're paying Paul, Paul Spargaro. He's not Mark Marcus. Maybe Paul thinks that his older brother should be on the bike as well, and this is just going to cause loads of tension then within Honda. <laughs> Dave, what about you? Who was your big loser from the weekend? Uh, I'm, uh, it has to be Fabio Quartararo just because of the arm pump prob uh, problems. And in fact, Neil made a really good point there um, that, uh, he was absolutely distraught in his uh, in his uh, debrief afterwards. He was like completely. He said he said um, multiple times, "I'm lost. I'm lost." He had too much information about what he should do, about whether he should have surgery or whether he should not have surgery. He had you know twelve million people telling him thirteen million different things. Um, uh, he will have a little bit of time now to go away think about it and uh, uh, make the right decision. But he could have come away from this race, you know, 25, 26, 27 points in the lead, but he didn't. Adam, what about you? Who's your big loser? Uh, I'm going to have to say Denis Onchu. Uh, he had a fantastic Moto3 race, helped set the pace right at the front with those KTMs. And then coming into the last corner, that kind of turn 13 uh, kind of bermuda triangle of uh you know loss of sanity calculation uh maybe he just decided to go for it and not only wiped out an irate jauma masia uh pretty much 
made a serious dent in the championship aspirations of Darren Binder um, and then also left Jerez with a massive cut on his neck. So uh, it was um, it went from being a fantastic Grand Prix to, to a very dismal ending for the for the young Turk. Yeah, I was just going to say, Ed, you could maybe flip it and say that he was pretty lucky to walk away uh, from that crash at all when you look at the scar on his neck. I mean, he was very, very lucky. Um, yeah, to, obviously he got caught up underneath Binder's bike and I think the brake disc um, marked his neck, but that could have been so much worse. I think is, I mean, lucky and loser, you know, two two different concepts there, Neil. But yeah, you're right. I mean, it was was a pretty scary injury. That the photo afterwards was uh, quite horrific. Yeah, no doubt we'll be talking about that on Friday on our follow up show where we'll be looking at Moto Two and Moto Three. Well, for me, my big loser from the weekend, and uh, it's never something that uh, anyone wants to see but it was Valentino Rossi it's another weekend where we saw just how much MotoGP has moved on Rossi's time was pretty much the same as the time he had to finish on the podium last year in Andalusia and instead he, he didn't even pick up points so for me we're now getting very close to the point where Rossi's going to just have to hold his hands up and say enough's enough because this is a competitive bike a top class team and he's not able to get the results right now. And we're actually going to talk about that in a Patreon special for Paddock Pass Podcast Extra this week. So just before we finish up on today's show, just uh, to get a quick thought from each of you about Valentino before we record that uh, Paddock Pass Podcast Extra. Ad, what about you? Oh, it's, uh, I still, we still need to see him on a couple more of his favoured stronger tracks. Steve, uh, let's not forget he's on a similar technical base uh to you know the 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 motorcycle and and the riders that have won grand prix already this year so um i think uh you know somebody is holding the towel or ringside but it's not quite on the floor just yet uh yeah i mean i think he will i mean hope eventually fades um i don't think it's quite faded for him uh, but uh you know we've people have been writing Valentino Rossi off for the past 10 years or so uh, at some point we're going to be right uh, to do so um yeah I have to agree with Dave I mean I've, I've made the mistake of writing Rossi off certain points in the past and then he's come back and made me look a bit silly um but I mean the situation is so dire at the moment um and Rossi's results have been so poor um that yeah you really struggle to think that there's a, a way back from here um so i don't think there's going to be a happy ending in this year for rossi if i'm being serious um and you know hereth has been a, a great track for him in the past um and it was absolutely not uh this time around so it doesn't look good yeah and i think certainly from my perspective when you look at it there was times last year rossi looked great you know you think back to catalonia he could have won that race you know he was strong at a few races able to run at the front his times aren't bad MotoGP is just where it is right now that uh, you know you can be just that little bit off and you're all the way at the back of the field and you know that's what's going to be interesting just to talk about in a little bit more detail in the Paddock Pass podcast extra so if you want to listen to that you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month you can also support us for $10 a month to become a Paddock Insider and that's where you'll be able to get the Paddock Notes show all the way through a Grand Prix race weekend lots of good info from that with, uh, all of us get together on a Zoom call once the rider debriefs finish just to get everyone up to date as quickly as possible possible on that so check out patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast and in the meantime if you want to drop us a question or a comment you can do that at paddock pass pod or you can do it to any of us directly on twitter as well so until next week on the paddock pass podcast a big thank you from myself steve english dave emmett neil morrison adam wheeler and uh, we'll talk to you all next week this episode of the paddock pass podcast was produced by jensen beeler david emmett steve english 
Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. Paul. Okay, of course, Paul, Paul. Okay, sorry, Brian. Sorry for fucking up my cue again.